You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Last Sunday we embarked on a series that I'd entitled The Life and Times of Elijah. And you remember that we started off by noting that Elijah was called by God to be a prophet to the people of Israel during a time of great spiritual departure. And that Elijah was called to go and to confront Ahab and tell him that there was going to be a famine in the land that would last for about three and a half years. He did that. And after he did that, he then uh, was taken by God and told that he had to remain at a brook in a ravine where he would be fed by the ravens morning and evening. And also he could get uh, nourishment from the water uh, uh, at the brook. And there he stayed for quite a period of time until eventually he was called to go from there when the drought started to catch. Uh, He was told to go, and we didn't study it together, but he was told to go and he would meet a widow woman who would look after him uh, for the remaining part of the famine. And then when he was with that widow, unfortunately her son died. But Elijah was God's instrument in uh, seeing that the son was brought back to life again. But then, as I say, the time came when the three and a half years was up. And last Sunday night, we looked at Elijah being out, and he met this man called Obadiah, who was a devout believer in the Lord, but he also lived in the king's palace. And Obadiah was, we discovered, in a very strategic position to be in the court of a pagan king, but at the same time to be uh, a believer in the Lord. He had an incredible plan, and that was he hid some of the prophets who had not bowed to Baal in caves and made sure that they were fed. But on one occasion, we discovered that he had a predicament, that he met Elijah at the end of this three-and-a-half-year period, and Elijah asked him to go and tell Ahab that he had found Elijah again, and Obadiah was frightened to go because he thought if he goes and he doesn't take Elijah with him, because Ahab was looking for Elijah at that time, then he'd be in serious trouble. But Elijah promised him that he would meet with Obadiah that particular day, which he did. So we take up the story uh, at that point uh, this morning, because we come to what I suppose we could call Elijah's greatest commission and challenge. Elijah spent no time returning to Ahab, and we're told that in 1 Kings chapter 18, that Ahab was to summon the people of Israel to Mount Carmel. And not only the people of Israel, but the 450 prophets of Baal, and another 450 false prophets who were told ate at Jezebel's table. And there they would be given specific instructions as to what would happen. And we read many of those instructions this morning from our reading. They were to build an altar, they were to put wood in the altar, they were to put no fire on it, they were to get a bull, they were to cut it up, and they were to prepare for a sacrifice. And then they were to call on their God, the God of Baal, first of all, and as far as the Baal prophets were concerned, they wanted the fire to come and consume the altar, and the prophet, and and, and, and the and the, and the, the calf. Uh, and then later on, uh, Elijah was going to get up and he was going to do the same with the same uh, intention. 
The geographical setting of Mount Carmel provided a, a perfect arena for all this to happen. Uh, there was that area in Mount Carmel where the province of Bale could, as it were, sit at the front on a type of stage type area with the terrain. And Elijah and the altar and all the rest of it and the king would be up there. And everybody would sit around and they would watch and they observe what was going to happen. And so when everybody had gathered, we discover that Elijah, as it were, issued a challenge. And the challenge was this. How long are you going to waver between two opinions? And this was the challenge to the people of Israel at that time. That if God is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And look at the response. The response was, we're told, that the people said absolutely nothing. The question we need to ask ourselves this morning is simply the question, why did they maintain a silence? I want to make three suggestions. First of all, I would suggest to you that most of them, in fact all of them, didn't want to make a decision. Their view was, why can't we just simply worship the two gods? Why can't we worship the God of Israel, the God we've been brought up to understand, and why can't we worship Baal, the God that has been imposed upon us? Because Elijah was calling him to make a choice. It had to be one or the other. And as far as they were concerned, it was easy to just accommodate both. And so today, is it not true in the hearts of many people that that's exactly the case? We have those who come along to church on a Sunday. And they want to at least give some nodding acquaintance to the fact that they believe in God. And they worship this God that they see or believe in the distance, as it were, on a Sunday. But then on a Monday, they want to do their own thing. We don't want to make a decision one way or the other. And why did they not want to answer this question? Well, because they didn't want to make a decision. And the second reason is because I think they were enjoying a worldly lifestyle. After all, to follow the God of Israel was rather constrictive. If they were going to follow the God of Israel, what did they have to do? They had to follow the Ten Commandments. And as far as worshipping Baal was concerned, there was a, a greater laxity on how you could live than if you were following the Ten Commandments. For example, immorality was part of the religious worship of Baal, therefore they could just live as they pleased, and they could move away from the restrictive practices of the commandments in respect of that. To worship God was far more constricting than to worship Baal. Hence, let's have a foot foot in both camps. In other words, what they were really saying, if we want to put it into New Testament terminology, was we want, do not want to embrace the cost of discipleship. Discipleship means that we've got to follow Jesus Christ. In this case, discipleship means we've got to follow the Ten Commandments. And we don't want to be straight-jacketed into that particular restrictive lifestyle. They were enjoying a worldly lifestyle. And no doubt, the third reason was that they were afraid to voice their opinions. After all, the king and queen 
was worshipping Ahab. Maybe reluctantly, Ahab had embraced what Jezebel had imposed upon the community. And so they didn't want to, as it were, go against, if you want to call what the establishment wanted. And so their silence was predictable. Now before we go on and look at the contest, we need to ask, why do some people today not want to come down on one side or the other? Why not come down on the side of the Christian gospel? Surely the answer to that question as well is that society today is being conditioned to think in a particular direction. That if we share the gospel or if we're involved in the gospel, we have to become sort of fanatics. To take the view that there's only one way to heaven in some people's eyes is offensive, it's exclusive, it's not inclusive, and it's intolerant. What does John 3 and 16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever, everybody, but whosoever believeth, it's not a matter of whosoever, just leaving it that, there is the condition that whosoever believeth should not perish but have everlasting life. And so much today is true of the fact that there are these folks and they call themselves the diversity zealots. And they have created a new and dangerous religion that says that everybody's right. And therefore, we need to ask ourselves the question, where do we stand on this issue? I, I actually happened to be in Edinburgh on, uh, on Monday. And I heard, as many of you probably heard at home, I heard the, um, the service that was held in St. Giles Cathedral. And then when I was at home, when the Queen was brought back to Westminster Hall, there was a wee short service just at that point as well. And on both those occasions, the same, uh, as it were, verses of Scripture were read. There were a couple of different scriptures read in Edinburgh, but at the one at the Westminster Hall, there was only one scripture read. But the two script, the, the one was read at both places. The scripture was found in John chapter 14, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Who chose that scripture? I would suggest to you that that scripture was chosen by none other than the Queen herself, who no doubt wanted everything done in the way that she wanted at her funeral. And she would have had the opportunity to choose that particular scripture. And what was she saying? She was saying, in a world of pluralism, in a community that I reigned over that has all sorts of religions, at the end of the day, what I believe is that no man cometh unto the Father but through Jesus Christ. And so sometimes today, we can feel we don't want to get too much involved in Christian things because it's not popular today. We're considered to be fanatics. But what was it that Alistair Begg a well-known preacher in our generation said in response to 
how we should take a stand. He said this, we need to take a strong stand in a world of pluralism concerning the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus Christ. That's what the Queen did. We need to take a strong stand concerning the purity that is represented in following Jesus Christ. And we need to take a strong stand concerning the supremacy and the authority of Scripture. It's not arrogant for Christians to say that Jesus is the only way to God, because that's what the Bible teaches. Muhammad was the founder of Islam. Joseph Smith was the founder of the Mormon movement. But those are not the ways to God. The unique Son of God is the one who we need to follow. And the first commandment tells us that we shall have no other gods before him. And again, it was Joshua, the great military leader at the time when the people of Israel were going to storm the uh, city of Jericho. He called on the people, choose you this day whom you will serve. And he concluded, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. And the sobering truth is that the children of Israel needed to consider in the days, whether it was in the days of Elijah or in the days of Joshua, who they were going to serve. And that challenge comes out to you and to me in the same way today. Choose you this day whom you will serve. I'm sure today none of us in here worship images of wood or stone or iron or brass. But our God might be our bank balance, our position within the church, our educational status, our family, our health, our relationships, our sports, our hobby, our lodge. Any of these things can completely take over. But we're asked, as Elijah asked the people, how long do you hold between two opinions? As Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve. And that's the question that all of us need to ask today. This morning, I, I deliberately uh, uh, told the, the children's address because I want to conclude with an illustration that in some ways had, had its links with, with the children's address. When I was a wee boy, on a Sunday night, when my mother and father were going to church, very often I went and visited my grandmother, who lived in, in that particular uh, peculiar house with the river, sort of running uh, under one of the rooms. And when I went down on a Sunday night, I used to remember sitting on her knee, and she sang hymns to me. And she used to ask me, what hymn do you want me to sing? Mary, she sang a number of hymns, but the one that I always ask, and I think I've quoted it in here before, but I'm going to quote it again this morning for a particular reason. It was the hymn there in 1909 that safely lay in the shelter of the fold. This morning I was listening to the news, and I was listening to uh, the minister of, who, or at least he had maybe been the minister, I'm not sure he's still the minister, of the little Presbyterian church up at Balmoral, where the Queen regularly went when she was able to do so, and mostly able to do so when she was up at Balmoral. When, when she was in Scotland, as you probably know, the Queen was a Presbyterian, and she went to, to the local Presbyterian church. 
This minister this morning was asked the question, what was the Queen's favorite hymn? And this was the answer he gave. He said, when the Queen was a young child going up to Windsor, on a Sunday night, her grandfather, King George, sang hymns to her. And what was the hymn that she always asked for? There were ninety and nine that safely lay in the shelter of the fold. So what does that hymn say? If it says what she believed, then it is absolutely fantastic, and I have no reason to believe otherwise. But let me read to you the hymn. There were ninety and nine that safely lay in the shelter of the fold, but one was out on the hills away, far from the gates of gold, away on the mountains, wild and bare, away from the tender shepherd's care. Lord, thou hast here thy ninety and nine. Are they not enough for thee? But the shepherd made answer, this is mine, has wandered away from me. And though the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. But none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night that the Lord passed through, ere he found the sheep that was lost. And out in the desert he heard its cry, sick and helpless and ready to die. But all through the mountains thunder riven, and up from the rocky steep there arose a cry at the gates of heaven, Rejoice, I have found my sheep. And the angels echoed around the throne, Rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. Has there been rejoicing with the angels in heaven over you? Having responded to the gospel, recognizing that you were a sheep, to use the illustration of the parable, that you were a sheep that was lost, but that Jesus Christ wanted to go out and find a lost sheep, even though there were 99 in the fold, the one was still important, and you're still important. And the question is, what will you do with Jesus, who is called Christ? How long halt you between two opinions? Choose you this day whom you will serve. Or in the words of the hymn, what will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Let us pray.